Well, if you are remaining in here, we're going to be in the book of Job. So go ahead and turn to Job. Uh, just so you know, uh, next week we will, we will end our series in Job that we started uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, so today is the eighth sermon in this series. And the title is, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better. This comes from the 1946 musical, Annie Get Your Gun. In the musical, the song sets the stage uh, for the sharpshooting contest between Annie Oakley and Frank Butler. And Annie Oakley says, anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. And I can't think of a better song that reflects the human heart. In our, in our sinful humanity, anything you can do, I can do better. Uh, I mean, just think about it. Have you ever thought that about someone else? watching what they do, even if you have, even if you don't have experience in what they're doing, we can sit and be like, well, I could do that. I do that at the Winter Olympics all the time. <laughs> like curling, I could do that. Like, I, I, I think I could probably be a gold medalist, pretty easy. Um, we, we can so easily uh, place ourselves on, on, you know, the bleachers and, and watch people, and especially in sports, even if we've never played the sport, we're a better coach and a better player than everyone out there. Um, and, the, and this is prevalent in our hearts. Hollywood knows this. Hollywood has picked up on this. In fact, they create movies all the time that reflect this. Probably one of the greatest movies that reflects this idea of anything you can do, I can do better, was the movie Bruce Almighty. Many of you remember that movie? Um, I was beginning to wonder, is that too old now? Can we still reference it? I think we can. Um, in the movie, a weatherman, played by Jim Carrey, uh, thinks he can do a better job than God running the world. And so Morgan Freeman, who is God, uh, uh, shows up and says, well, well fine, you, you take a chance. And you can only imagine what happens. Uh, Jim Carrey messes everything up. And, and so today, we're, we're going to be in the book of Job, and we're looking at the last speech that God will give. And Job has complained about the way God runs the world. And in essence, Job thinks he can do a better job. Whatever God can do, Job can do better. So unlike Morgan Freeman, God is not going to throw his hands up and say, well, you try, Job. Let's see you take a go at it. Rather, God's going to give a speech. And this speech will serve as the means in which Job will be brought to humility, repentance, and worship. And we need this speech because we need to be reminded that God is God and we are not. And so... Uh, I encourage you today, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting passage, but as we come to it, I want us to see that God alone is able to rule this world. He alone is good. He alone is righteous. He is alone clothed with power and splendor and glory, and because of that, we can trust in him, and we can rest in his rule even when it looks like everything is chaotic. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and stand with me. We're not going to read the entire uh, text today, but we're going to read uh, chapter 40, verses 6 uh, through 14. And so here we go. This is the beginning of, of the second speech God will give. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even 
put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Put, pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is a proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Let me pray. Father, Father, we have sung today that, Lord, you alone are God. And, Lord, I pray that as we come to this text, that, Lord, every single one of us is reminded that we are not God. And that you alone are God. You alone are worthy of all glory, of all honor and praise. You have created all things. You sustain all things. You rule over all seen and unseen realities. And Lord, where there is pride in our heart today, where we grumble, where we complain, where we think that you are not on your throne and we can rule better, I pray that you bring that to the surface, expose it, and may we repent. May our response be the same as Job's today, that we repent and we worship you. Lord, that as we go out from today, we would have a heart that lives in humble submission to you, that worships and glorifies you, and that experiences contentment at all times in this chaotic and tumultuous world that we live in that we would shine as a light in this world, not because we are strong, but because you are strong. And we know that you rule all things perfectly and not one purpose of yours can be thwarted. So God, give us wisdom today. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, so if you've been with us, uh, you, you may remember in the first speech, God, God says, out of the whirlwind, or out of the whirlwind, God speaks, and he turns to Job and says, dress for action like a man. So speech number two begins very similarly to speech number one by God, and we begin with some accusations. God is going to uh, bring up what, what Job has accused him of, and God basically says in verses eight and nine, Job, you have said that I have failed to rule the world rightly. Do you, do you know more than me, Job? In verse 9, God's going to refer to his, his thunderous voice and his arm, which are ways of referring to God's power and his might. And he basically says, Job, do you, Job, do you think you're stronger than me? Do you think you're more qualified to run this world than I am? Now, if you remember, Job has not suffered because of sin in his own life. He didn't live a secret life of sin that got exposed and therefore he's been going through all these trials. That's what his friends came and said. But that was not what happened. Rather, the suffering Job has experienced has stirred up pride within his heart. And that is one of the reasons God has brought these trials into his life that it would expose sin there so that Job would be conformed more and more to the Son of God. Uh, to his son, Jesus Christ. And so I want to remind you that God will bring trials into our life to stir up that which we are not aware of in order that we would confess it, repent, 
and live in light of the very glory of God. And so whatever trial you are in or maybe in the future, it may not be because of any particular sin you have done, but very likely it will stir up sin within your heart, which is what has happened to Job. And so next we see that, that God gives him a challenge in verses 10 through 14. And, and basically God challenge, challenges Job to clothe himself with glory, clothe himself with splendor, and bring judgment upon the wicked. In verse 14, God basically says, if you can rightly judge the world, then I will acknowledge that you are, right, that you are able to rightly judge your own situation and save yourself. Now some of you might be thinking, I wish God would give me that chance. I could totally do that because anything you can do, I can do better. Um, others of you are, are much more holy and righteous. And you are saying, well, I would never say such a thing. Um, it's true. It's true. Um, notice the, the implication of our grumbling and when we're discontent in our hearts is that we do think we can do a better job than God. And good evidence of this is in, is in the, the books of Exodus and Numbers. There Moses is leading God's people through the wilderness and God's people just complain and complain and complain and they grumble all the time. And their grumblings are directed against who? Against Moses. And yet in Exodus 16 verse 8, Moses says, your grumbling's not about me, it's towards God. So when you grumble against me, you're ultimately grumbling against the very purposes of God. And right now, in our world, everyone grumbles. I mean, you know this. This is, this, is not, this is not new to you. We grumble about politics. We grumble about what the police should do or should not do. We grumble about gun laws and shooting, about the homeless, about disease and about sickness, and about masks. We grumble about our neighbors. We grumble about events all over the world. And we could just make this list on and on and on and on. We can grumble about everything. We grumble about grumbling, yeah. And in our grumbling, we are saying that we know better. We see everything clearly. And ultimately, our grumbling is against the very rule of God. For if God is sovereign over every event, and he's the one who appoints leaders and removes leaders, which we read all throughout Scripture, then when we grumble, we're saying we can do a better job than God. We're saying, if I was on the throne, this wouldn't happen. If I was on the throne, these trials would not be taking place. And so how is God going to move Job? How is God going to move us to, respent, to repentance? Because after, after God's first speech, if you remember, Job covers his mouth. But that's the extent at where he goes. He just goes, I, I probably shouldn't speak anymore. But he's not moved yet to repentance. And so there's more to be said. So what is it that Job needs to hear? What is it that we need to hear? And that's where we get into strange things. If you know this part of the book, it's that part of the book that we all go, what are we talking about? Because God in his infinite wisdom says, we're now going to talk about the behemoth and Leviathan because that will answer all of your questions on evil. And at first glance, I mean, these, these chapters are, are confusing and they seem strange. And so before we, we dig into them, I, I first want us just to be sure, what do they accomplish? 
Because, because I think when we, when we go to chapter 42 and we see what happens as a result of these speeches, then we come back to these speeches and we go, well, how did they do that? And what we're going to see is that God, like, like, a, like a doctor, uses these speeches on, on a behemoth and Leviathan like a surgical tool that will perfectly slice away the pride that Job has. And the same he will do for us. So if you have your Bibles, look at Job 42. I want to read verses 1 through 6. You don't have to stand for this. It says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He then quotes God. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He answers, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I, I did not know. Again, he, he quotes God, verse four. Here and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And then Job says, I, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Now get this, get this. But now my eyes see you. So think about this. God's speeches on the behemoth, on the Leviathan, have done something that Job now goes, I've gone beyond hearing, and with these speeches on the behemoth and Leviathan, I see you. So these speeches are powerful. They do something here. And then in verse 6, Job says, Therefore I, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So after speech number one, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, where God walks through all of creation, and he walks through these animals, and, and we see that God rules perfectly over all things, and he provides, and he cares for it. Job covers his mouth and says, I, I shouldn't say anymore. But that's it. He's not moved to humble repentance. But now, after this, he says, everything you do, you do. Nothing can thwart your purpose. I've spoken of things that are too wonderful for me. I should not have done that. I repent. I repent. So what, what has happened? Well, Job, does, Job says at least three things here. Number one, he testifies of the supremacy of God there in verse two. This is, this is, I would say this is probably one of those popular verses in Job. It's a good one to memorize. I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Know that verse. Job is, has been reminded of that verse, and it's brought his soul to peace now. He realizes that God has not been overcome. Evil is not running rampant throughout the world. God's righteous plans and purposes are perfectly intact. Number two, Job acknowledges his creaturely limitations. In verse three, he, he realizes, I've spoken wrong. I should not have talked about these things. These things are too wonderful for me. Job has been complaining from a very limited perspective, from, from his cheap seats. He said, I see everything, but now he realized, I don't see hardly anything. I just see this small little glimpse of all of creation. And I spoke of things I, I should not have said. Number three, Job confesses his sin and worships God, and the worshiping God is all that he says here. He says, I repent. I despise myself. He despises his sin and the words that he has spoken, and he humbly worships God. Listen, when you repent, you worship God. Do you know that? When you repent and you say, I have sinned against you, you're acknowledging his greatness. You're acknowledging his holiness, and you're acknowledging that you're a sinner standing before him. 
Repentance and worship is the daily action of a believer. I encourage you, if, there, if you cannot remember the last time that you have repented, then you have pride in your heart today. Just know that if you can't remember the last time you've repented, because repentance is a daily action of, of a believer. So know that. So, so we look at this response, this amazing response that Job gives in chapter 42, and we need to say, what happened? What has brought about this great heart change in Job? What has removed pride and replaced it with humility? What has Job heard? What has he seen that has caused him to see the foolishness of the pride in his heart? What has brought Job to this joyful and humble worship? Answer, God's speeches on the behemoth and Leviathan. See how practical this is? Now, before we look at these speeches, um, I mean, they're complex. Uh, and there's different ways that they're interpreted. Now, I will say, regardless of how they're interpreted, for the most part, you're going to come to the same conclusion. Um, but uh, primarily, they're either, the behemoth and Leviathan are either interpreted as, as physical known creatures on earth, like the hippo and the crocodile. Those are the two most popular choices of them. Or they're more symbolic figures representing greater spiritual realities. Now, I, I believe it's the latter. I don't think that, that they're physical creatures. But if they are physical creatures, then surely the description goes beyond merely physical and points to spiritual. And that's where I'd say no matter where you land, it's, it's taking you to the same place. And so let me just give you four reasons why I would say it's best not to look at them as mere physical creatures, but there's, there's, there's representing spiritual realities. Number one, if these creatures are simply known physical animals, then how do they advance God's argument from the first speech when he listed animals like the ostrich and the warhorse and, and the birds and the eagles and he talked about how he provides for them and rules over them and yet here we're going to see he rules over these creatures too. So how does it advance the argument? He rules over animals and now he rules over these animals and that moves Job to worship. So that, that's confusing if it's just the same type of argument. Number two, why does God use mythic type language like Leviathan if he's referring to a literal land physical creature? In ancient Near Eastern myth, uh, mythology, the Leviathan was known as Lotan, a servant of the sea god Yam, and he was said to be a seven-headed beast uh, that ruled the, the waters, which waters like the seas would represent chaos and evil. And that was known. So anytime you mentioned Leviathan, everyone pictured this evil and this chaos. It's kind of like if we said, hey, imagine Friday the 13th. Immediately you go towards, oh, well, I remember Freddy Krueger and these, these certain movies that are all associated with that. And so as soon as this language would be used, anyone in this time period would automatically be thinking these evil type figures that rule the cosmos. Number three, these these creatures are described as supernatural type beasts. We'll see that Leviathan is described as this fire-breathing dragon that's unable to be conquered by anyone. What physical animal breathes fire in the way that we're told here? And we're told, number four, that only God can defeat these creatures, but both of these creatures, if they were crocodiles and hippos, were both hunted in ancient Egypt. 
And it was known that they were hunted. And so it would be a little weird for God saying, nobody can overcome this. I mean, except for this whole people group here, which hunts them and kills them and mummifies crocodiles and puts them with the pharaohs. So it would be a little confusing there. So again, if you want to argue that they're physical creatures, that's fine. But surely you have to go. They point beyond mere physical. But I think it's good to see that very likely they're meant to be spiritual type creatures representing evil spiritual realities in this world. So, um, so that's the, the, the direction and the way we're going to move forward on these. When God spoke of the behemoth and Leviathan, Job would naturally um, have thought of the incredible spiritual beings with massive power. And if you know the Bible, then you know that often spiritual forces of evil are depicted as hideous, grotesque beasts. Uh, in the book of Daniel, we see that. E even in the garden, we see in Genesis 3, Satan, Satan slithers in as a what? As a snake. What is Leviathan? It's a giant snake. It's a giant seven-headed dragon. In, the gar in Revelation 12, we are told that Satan appears in the form of a seven-headed dragon. And so, I actually, and I'll make the case later, that I think Leviathan most likely represents Satan. So he, he appears in chapters 1 and 2, and then he appears at the end of the book also. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at these creatures just one at a time, and then we'll, we'll come to some concluding thoughts about them at the end. So we'll start with the behemoth in chapter 4. Uh, 40 verses 15 through 24. So there's 10 verses. And let me just give uh, four things that we see. Number one, in verse 15, we see this creature is created. We see he's a, he's a created work. Uh, it says, uh, behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. He's not eternal like God. Now, interestingly, the word behemoth, it's, it's used in the plural so it's a, a plural word for a, a singular being. Many commentators, in fact, most commentators take this to, it probably refers to trying to call it some type of super beast. It, it represents something of incredible power, which brings us into the second point we see. He's known for his strength. Like in verse 18, his bones are like bronze and his limbs are bars of iron. We're told that muscles are just rippling over his legs and his torso. He has immense strength. Nothing can overcome him. And because of his incredible strength, he has no fear. We're told that he roams the mountains, but then he can also go into the turbulent waters of the Jordan and he rests and make his, makes his home there. There's nothing that threatens this beast. This brings us to the question that God asked in verse 24. Job, Job, can, can you take the behemoth by, by the eyes or, or pierce his nose with a snare? Job, are you, are you strong enough to contend with this beast? Job, if you're going to save yourself, if you're going to rule everything, if you, then just reach out and grab the behemoth. Show him, show him you're a man, Job. This would be like asking someone to climb into a tank with a great white shark. Like, there's no coming back from this. Nobody does this. You know it's absolute destruction if you go forward with this. And so while Job is unable to control the beast, then we come to verse 19. There is one who can control the beast. There is one who can slay the beast. God is the one who made this beast and can bring the sword and strike him down. It says, he is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him 
bring near his sword. So while no person can come across this beast and stand against him, that God can bring his sword right up to him and slay him at any moment. So next we turn to Leviathan. Now there's 34 verses that describe this one, which probably, and just mere size of the description, is meant to show this beast is even greater. And so there's, there's several things that I want to point out here. We'll kind of walk through the chapter. I'm not going to read it all, but I'll just reference verses. Like in verses 1 through 5, we see the Leviathan is unable to be controlled. It's uncontrollable. Verse 1, Job, can you catch him with a hook? Can, can you throw something in the water, Job, and just, just pull him out? Verse 3, Job, are, are you so strong that this beast will, will make pleas with you? It'll ask you, beg you for mercy, Job. Look at verse 5. Job, if you're going to rule the world, why don't you grab him like a small bird? Show him your strength, Job. Maybe put him on a leash, walk him around, give him to your girls, Job. Let, let them play with them. The point is, is, no, no, man doesn't put the Leviathan on a leash. Man doesn't control this thing. Next, in verses six through nine, Leviathan is, is uncatchable. Verse seven, Job, Job, can you use harpoons and spears to catch him? No, no, you can't, Job. In verse eight, Job, why don't you put your hand out against him? Go to war with him, Job. Notice then what we read at the end of verse 8. It says, remember that battle. You'll never do it again. You'll never do it again, Job. A warning. Nobody, nobody, nobody goes against the Leviathan. Nobody does. In verse 9, we see the hope of man is useless against this creature. You cannot catch him. You cannot overcome him. In verses 13 through 17, we see Leviathan is impenetrable. Look at verse 15. His back is a row of shields. There's no gaps. There's no weak spots. We're told air can't even get in between them. You can't shoot an arrow at it. It's not going to find the, the secret weak spot. There's no Achilles heel on him. In verses 18 through 21, we see the Leviathan is full of fire. He sneezes and fire comes out. Out of his mouth comes fire. Smoke comes from his nostrils. If you, if you remember the movie, Lord of the Rings, I think it's the second one, Middle Earth, there's Balrog, the fiery demon beast. Remember that? That's the picture that we have here. This beast of just fire coming, raging against and Job. He says, well, well if you're going to rule the world, if you're going to rule your world, Job, and right your situation, you need to be over, able to overcome all forces of evil, Job. Can, can you do that? Can you go against this fiery demon? In verses 22 to 32, we just see Leviathan is absolutely unconquerable. And, and, and there's a list of weapons that are used. So basically, they're saying all known weapons right now are useless against this beast. He's going to mention, uh, this, thank you for, for these texts on uh, Lord of the Rings now. I greatly appreciate this. I'm getting them coming across. And apparently that was in the first one, not the second one. So uh, thank you. Thank you, Aaron Powell. Oh, did I say your name? My bad, my bad. You know, I thought about holding back on that, but I mean, you, you texted me. Uh, so uh, I, yeah, I'm not a Lord of the Rings expert. I did, I had to go to the, but I knew he existed. Aaron's going to beat me up later. Um, 
But in these verses, 22 to 32, he mentions the sword, the spear, darts, javelin, arrows, slings and stone, clubs. They're useless. Just turns them all to rubble. Iron is nothing to this beast. There's no man-made weapon that overcomes his power, his might, and his fury. You can drop a bomb on him. He laughs at you and will spit fire back at you. In verses 33 to 34, we see Leviathan is the embodiment of evil. Look at these verses, 41, 33 to 34. So last chapters of chapter 41. He says, on earth, there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. This Leviathan is a fearless creature. He rules over the sons of pride. So who does this sound like? Does it not sound like Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air? Is it not a picture of Satan himself? Satan is full of pride. And we know that it's his pride that, that moved him to go against God and take a third of the angels with him, thinking that he can overthrow God from his throne. This creature is the king of all pride, rules over the sons of pride. Job has no chance of standing against this beast. Job is powerless to overcome his strength and his fury. But then we come back to verses 10 through 11. And right after we read, no one is able to stand before this creature. Notice what God does. He goes using an argument from lesser to greater. And he says, who then can stand against me? If none of you can stand before the Leviathan, Job, if you don't have a chance against this fiery demon monster, you think you can stand in my place? You see the argument he's making? This is a created being. I can destroy him at any moment. And if you can't stand against him, why would you think you could sit on my throne and rule the world with perfect governance. Verse 11, who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Nothing is outside the control of God. This is where Job goes in Job 42 too. I know that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, God. There is nothing outside the control of God. God is infinitely greater than Leviathan. Leviathan requires life and God gives him that life. But God owes his existence to no one. God is the author of life. God is the author of creation. No one counsels God. No one gives to God. No one helps God. God is the one who owns everything. So however great this Leviathan and this behemoth type figure is, it pales in comparison to God. There's no power, there's no being greater than the God of the Bible. All other powers are like an anthill standing next to Mount Everest, just insignificant. Just insignificant, not able to compare. So we know how Job responds. He testifies of God's supremacy. He acknowledges his own limitations. He humbly repents and worships God. But why? What is it about these descriptions that has moved God, moved Job to worship? What has Job learned? What does he, remember it says, I've heard of you. And then he says, now I've seen you. What has he seen about God? So there's, there's two things I want to point out. 
Number one, evil is, is far greater and wilder than Job ever imagined. You see, Job thought he understood the world. He, knew, he thought he knew how to better rule the world than God does. At the very most, he thought he understood his own situation. He thought he knew what was best for his own life. Do you ever think that? I at least know what's best for me. And he thought, at the very least, he could sit on God's throne and govern his own life. But if these two creatures represent evil and wicked powers in this world, which seems to be the obvious conclusion, then Job has no clue, ability, or power on how to run things in this world. Job has been reminded there are forces of evil in this world that are far greater and stronger and wilder than he's imagined. Job has seen Leviathan. He's come, he stared, faith, he stared death in the face. It's like these creatures represent all horror movies rolled into one. Job has beheld evil. And it's this evil that's all over the world. It's this evil that causes man to reject God and sacrifice children to false gods, which we see all throughout the Old Testament. It's this evil that causes man to, to sexually pervert, to be sexually perverse and trample God's design for sex and marriage. It's this evil that causes Israel to continually rebel against God's rule. It's this evil that stirred up the crowds so that Jesus, the righteous son of God, would be condemned, whipped, beaten, mocked, and crucified. It's this evil that targets the church and Christians today all throughout the world, which, which even was testified earlier today by Patrick. It's this evil that seeks to turn humanity against itself. It's this evil that justifies the killing of babies. It's this evil that rips apart homes and families because of drugs, sex, and money. It's this evil that supports billion-dollar industries in our world like pornography and sex trafficking. In Revelation 17, we're actually given a picture of this evil. We're told that there's a woman who sits on a beast, on a dragon, on a leviathan, and, and on... And while she sits on this beast in her hands, a golden cup full of abominations, impurity, sexual immoralities, and in her mouth is the blood of saints representing the cultures of this world and their defiance and opposition against not only God but his people. So God has given Job a first-hand reminder of all of this evil in the world. And so let me ask you, do you, do you think you can rule this world with these powers and these evil forces in it? Do you have the power, the wisdom to control the behemoth and Leviathan? Can you perfectly administer judgment, knowing all the ins and outs of all the wickedness and all the injustices in this world? If these are the enemies that, that are against you can, you, can you control them? Can you slay them? And the thing is, we think we can. We really think we can, which only does one thing and proves that we are all the more sons of pride. Scripture says this evil, this sinfulness that the behemoth and Leviathan represent, it dwells in the heart of every man. Do you know that? So while Job is getting this picture of not only the evil in the world, he's also being reminded of the very evil within his own heart. Jer Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3, 12 and 13 says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. 
Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Talking about all of humanity in our sinfulness, we just have poison in our words at all times. So what's the point? Job isn't, and neither are we, strong enough to overcome the sin and evil in the world or in our own heart. And if that's true, then we have no chance of rightly ruling this world. Our grumbling and complaining is simply evidence of the wickedness within our own heart. We're not qualified to judge the world because we're not qualified to judge ourselves. So then begs the question, so what what do we need? Well, we need someone stronger. We need someone who is righteous. We need someone who, who is able to bring judgment and perfect holiness. We need a God who's far more powerful than wicked rulers and evil dictators. We need a God who can right wrongs and punish the wicked. We need a God who can break the back of the behemoth and smash and grab the tail of Leviathan and smash him to the ground. We, we need a God who can take our, our hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh that love God and worship him. We need a God who will send his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us and overcome all evil so that we could be forgiven. And this brings us to the very point that God then wants us to see. If Job has come face to face with the darkness of horror and of evil, then now we see the the light of hope that bursts into the darkness where God's might and rule is without equal or rival. This is where Job see or he's heard all about God, but now on the background of all this evil, he sees that God is the one who rules it. That Satan is a dog on a leash. In both the descriptions of the behemoth and Leviathan, we're told that one is greater. We're told that one is God and he's infinitely stronger than the behemoth and his greatness far exceeds the Leviathan. Worth a word, he just simply can destroy these creatures. God is the one who puts fear in the behemoth and he places Leviathan on a leash. Do you remember Job 1 and 2? We're back there eight, well, like 10 weeks ago or so. And in Job 1 or 2, we see um, in both those chapters that Satan has to come before God. And he asks permission. Can I, can I do something to Job? And God gives him the limits and the boundaries in which he's able to do. It's like he, he just lets out a little bit of the leash and says, you can go this far. Now, in, in Job's perspective, up to this moment, it looks like evil's just running rampant all over the place. But now, Job realizes evil's on a leash. It's not running rampant. Chaos isn't going all throughout the world. We see this all throughout Revelation and Daniel as well, where we're seeing the saints are being martyred, and we go, man, is God in control? And yet throughout the entire book of Revelation, we see God is on his throne. And he uses all the things of evil even to bring about his purposes, which will bring about the destruction of evil. And we see God's power all throughout the gospels in the life of Jesus. It's interesting. If you go back like, like through the book of Mark, if you go to like Mark chapter four, remember Jesus is taking a nap. He's on a boat. Storms come. And the professional fishermen are scared to death at this moment. So they wake Jesus up and they say, you have to do something. Of course, everyone's probably wondering, what's he going to do? Jesus stands up and just says, be still. And all the forces of evil 
all the turbulent storms around him, the home of the Leviathan, the sea at that moment, perfectly becomes calm and still at the word of Jesus. In Mark chapter 5, we see, G, we see Jesus encounters this demon-possessed man. We're told he has a legion of demons within him. No one's able to control him. He lives among the cemeteries. He has broken chains on him. But then Jesus confronts him. And with a word, he casts out the demons within him and places him in a right state of mind. Jesus is stronger than all the armies of Satan combined. In Mark chapter 16, we have Jesus is crucified. Jesus is buried. But then we're told Sunday comes. And on Sunday, Jesus breaks forth from the grave. Satan and death are unable to hold him. He rises from the grave, proving he's victorious over sin, victorious over death, victorious over Satan, showing Satan has never been in control. But God is so powerful, he can even use Satan to accomplish his purposes, the death of his son Jesus, to then bring about the salvation of the church so that God would then have a people who would worship him for all of eternity and a new creation and thus accomplishing the purposes of God. Job 42, 2, no purpose of God's can be thwarted. In Revelation 19, we read when Jesus returns, He's going to come on a white horse before he came as a lamb. Second time he comes, it'll be like a lion and a warrior. He'll be on top of this horse. And this is what we read. Revelation 19, verse 15 and 16. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Look, Jesus needs no weapons. He needs no tanks. He needs no armies. He needs no nuclear weapons. He'll simply come and in perfect power and splendor with a word defeat all his enemies. With a word. As powerful as the behemoth is, as strong as Leviathan is. And when we look at the world and we go, there's just evil running rampant all the time. And it can move us to just go, is there hope? And I think there's really two responses. You either move towards anxiety and, and, and you're, you're fearful of everything in this world. Or you're moved to anger and those can be connected. And you just regularly complain about everything because you know you could do it better. Listen, Job, he doesn't repent and worship God because now he understands the origins of evil or even how God uses all things for the good of those who love him. Those questions have not been answered. In fact, it hasn't even been told why Job went through all of this, but he repents because God is the perfect, perfect righteous, all-powerful judge who rules the world. That's what he sees. There's evil, and it's hideous, but it's not out of control. The evils and events in this world are more complex than Job ever thought possible. He re now realizes he doesn't see everything rightly. He doesn't understand his situation. He certainly doesn't understand how the world is the way it is. There's no chance he can run the world. Job has been sitting on the bleachers, yelling at God how to do a better job, but now he realizes the game is far bigger and dangerous than he ever imagined. And yet, there is a God who rules. And so he's heard about this God. He's believed in this God. But now, in these speeches, he sees God. And his heart 
that you become angry is now replaced with a soft, humble heart that rests in the comfort of God's rule. So now he's able to worship God and his situation hasn't changed at all. His children are still dead. He's lost everything. He's still covered in source. There's been no change in circumstance at all. And yet now he worships God. He's at perfect peace. Why? Because he understands evil? Because he understands why his kids have died? No. Because he knows that there is a good, righteous, perfect God, which in appearing chaos is perfectly ruling this world. And no purpose of God's can be thwarted. Do you know that truth? That's what Job needed to hear. And that's what we need to be reminded of on a daily basis. Listen, in the Bible, we see the horrors of evil. But even more so, we see the greatness of God. We see that he rules all of life, physical and spiritual. We see that while things appear to be chaotic, again, Job 42.2, his purposes can never be thwarted. In a world full of anxiety and grumbling as Christians, when we know the rule of God, our hearts can be full of peace and rest because God is on his throne. The behemoth and Leviathan can destroy us at any moment, but they cower before his throne. And one day in God's perfect timing, when Jesus returns, the behemoth, Leviathan, Satan, death, all wickedness will be thrown into the lake of fire. So I encourage you, I encourage all of us, let, let's respond like Job has and acknowledge the greatness of our God, to, to remember the limitations of our creatureliness, we are not God. We do not see everything. We do not know everything. And then let us repent and worship that our God is on the throne. If you have a grumbling heart, repent. If you've been mad at God, I encourage you, like Job, cover your mouth and testify that you have spoken of things too wonderfully that you did not understand and repent today. Let us be a people that praises God. Let us be a people that knows he reigns supreme. Let us be a people that knows he has no rival and no equal, and let us rejoice in the truth that God alone is able to rule this world because he is clothed in power and glory and splendor. And while certain questions may not have been answered, like the origins of evil and how God uses all things, but a greater truth has been given to us and one that God in his infinite wisdom says, this is what you need to know. I'm on my throne and nothing happens outside of my purpose and outside of my will. Rest in that truth. Let's pray. Father, Father, we praise you today. And that God, we, we so often grumble we so often grumble and complain because we forget that we are mere creatures. We forget our mere limitations and we speak of things far too wonderful than we understand. But God, today, in a speech that only you could give on a behemoth and Leviathan, that Lord, you open our eyes to the hideous evil in this world. And if there is no God, then we are rightly to be moved to absolute fear. Yet you, you do exist. You are God and you rule over them perfectly. How and why, we don't know all those things, but, but God, you have shown us 
You have testified in your word that you are king and that you rule and that there is no power, spiritual or physical, that can take one step beyond that which you allow it. And we can rest in the truth that you do all things for the good of those who love you, that everything is working for your glory. And while there might be many questions that we have today, a day is coming when all of our questions will be answered when your son Jesus returns. And we will see with our very own eyes the power of your rule as you cast out all evil, all darkness, and death itself. And God, we long for that day. But God, may we show and may we testify that we believe that you are God, that we know that you are God who rules by not grumbling, by not complaining, but by living as light in this world because we have peace and rest because you rule. Lord, help us to know that truth. May that truth be driven deep within our heart. May we as a body regularly remind one another of that truth, that we would not be filled with anxiety and grumbling, but with humble worship, we like Job would come before you and say, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.